Welcome to Psychologic Volume 1. This podcast is a collection of the first six parts of this series, which has previously been serialised as contributions to the We Have Issues podcast. If you haven't heard We Have Issues, I highly recommend listening to it for its positive approach to comic reviewing, as well as listening to its award-nominated sister show, Two Grown Men, where the idea for Psychologic originated. So what is Psychologic? Psychologic is an attempt to explore the overlap between comics and clinical and forensic psychology. I used to, until very recently, work as an assistant clinical psychologist in a secure hospital. So what's a secure hospital and why do people go there? A secure hospital is a mental health institution or facility that's designed with a higher than normal level of security. In fact, one that is considered equivalent to that of a prison. And indeed, there are three main client groups who end up going into a secure hospital. The first is people who have committed crimes and are judged by a court to have had such a mental health component to the reason why they committed those crimes that they need only hospital treatment and that a prison sentence would be totally inappropriate for them. And so they are sent from the court directly to hospital. Some people become unwell or experience mental health difficulties. Uh, We'll talk a bit more about those dichotomies, I guess, throughout the podcast. Um, In prison, I don't know if you've ever visited a prison, but prisons are horrible places environmentally. Uh, Institutionally, I can't obviously speak for those uh, experiences, but I have visited prisons, and for example, Exeter Prison, environmentally, is a small, squalid, Victorian, cramped place, which in my mind, bears interesting comparisons with Arkham Asylum in terms of the Victorian Gothic design of some penal institutions. Something to consider in another episode, perhaps. The third group of people who end up moving into secure services are people who have been in the regular mainstream adult services of the mental health system, and who, because they become, or deemed to be, such a risk to themselves or others, that they are moved into a place with secure care. So the facility is based on how it's built, more secure, and also has a higher level of staffing who are also perhaps trained for uh, more risky scenarios. But the hope is, in a secure hospital as opposed to a prison, and as opposed to Arkham Asylum, of having a therapeutic environment where people are working together with those in the service towards finding Uh, some sense of wellness, recovery, safety. And clinical and forensic psychology is a big part of that. Uh, Psychology, in terms of, I suppose, the the clinical, or I guess you'd say the professional applied practice, is about working with people to understand what's going on for them uh, in terms of assessment uh, and develop a formulation, which I'll talk about in one of the episodes collected in this volume, and then come up with a treatment plan and work through therapy to help someone using talking-based principally approaches to experience, I guess, a change in the way that they understand and react to situations. So that was what I was doing. At an assistant level, I'm about to start my doctorate. As I record this tomorrow, I start my doctoral training, which is the final step of training before I will be fully qualified as a clinical psychologist. So that's the psychology side. Oh, I guess um, if you don't know, uh, and this is your first time listening to a show like this, I did a podcast all about psychology with my friend Ben. It's called Psychomedia, which is hosted on the same place that this is currently hosted, uh, which looked, I guess, more experimental psychology than clinical psychology. And it looked at the funny side of that. Whereas in this show, I've tried to look at uh, relevant pop cultural comparisons, but it's quite quite hard and I would say quite wrong in a lot of ways to try and make jokes out of clinical psychology. Um, we'll, we'll see how I feel about that as I go through my doctorate and I think maybe there's a sense of the, the privilege of the person concerned. It's not really my place as a practitioner to make jokes about clinical psychological matters. 
So what about comics? Maybe you're listening to this as someone who, you know, only knows comics tangentially. And I wouldn't say I'm a person that knows comics incredibly. Uh, I mean, I've had a long interest in comics. I made lots of contributions to the uh, show that came before. We have issues, the Momcast. And I think I've got awareness of where comics sit in pop culture. And I think the place where comics really overlap with talking about psychology, unless you're looking at something like Daryl Cunningham's Psychiatric Tales, uh, which I still need to read. It's on my Amazon wish list. Uh, but, you know, which directly tells stories about uh, mental health. Um, I think you have to look at Batman, uh, which is something I suppose uh, most people in the culture of comics readers and not are familiar with, either through the recent Christopher Nolan films, through the 60s camp TV series, through the Tim Burton films... Uh, through just the presence in pop culture that some properties or characters have. Um, I, I think I said in yeah, the original introduction to the first uh, issue of, uh, of Psychologic, Batman especially has played upon themes of mental health, madness, and therapeutic incarceration for a long time. It has the weird distinction of many of its villains being psychiatrists or psychologists. I find that very interesting. There's a, a idea that's definitely out there in Batman that if Batman were to become well or balanced, and those are very charged words, and I talk about this in, in the episodes, that he wouldn't be the guy fighting crime anymore. Um, but as the series goes on, I also talk about uh, Marvel heroes, because... Here's the thing, and um, it's one of the questions that's talked about in the, the final part uh, of this volume. Like, there isn't a line of mental health. You don't hop to one side or other in terms of illness and wellness. But that means that basically any experience can be constructed, considered, thought about in terms of mental health, in terms of clinical psychology. And that means that basically any hero may well give us a really interesting metaphor for understanding psychology in general, human behavior. And it may well be that that overlaps with a specific mental health issue. So I'm going to keep on mining the vast world of comic book characters, mainstream and maybe not so mainstream in future episodes, um, to see where those comparisons lie. And I think that's important to recognise. Mental health is a fundamentally human experience, and it's something that we all, to a greater or lesser extent, have experiences of. And that's why I think this show is really relatable. I think it's why characters from Two-Face Harvey Dent to The Incredible Hulk resonate with the audiences that enjoy them in whichever form. But I do want to give a proviso. I'm just about to start as a trainee clinical psychologist, so I can't promise that I get all the concepts accurate, either in psychology or in comics. But please do talk to me if you want to talk about, discuss. I hope that this is presented in a really open way that means that there is room for discussion uh, and that I'm not speaking so didactically throughout and saying, this is this for clinical or psychological concepts. Uh, so yes, please do talk to me. I'll give contact details at the end. And the other part of the proviso is my own mental health experience is real, but it might be that what I say jars with your own mental health experience, and it might be that it brings back unpleasant reminders, and if so, I want to apologise up front. I guess if it's triggering, then I can just say sorry. Uh, if you find that what I'm saying really doesn't fit with your experience of life, well-being, mental health, whatever you want to kind of label it, then let's talk about that too. I think it'd be great to get a dialogue going. Uh, so with that kind of introduction to the concept and my apologising in advance, but no, it's laying out the provisos, the real limitations of my perspective, my understanding, and thus my ability to explain, you know, don't take your mental health uh, advice for life from this podcast, because why? Um... I guess it's all there is to say is on with the show. Hope you enjoy it. See you on the other side.
our first case has to be that of Harley Quinn. Now, Harley, when she was Dr. Quinzel, was not a psychologist, but it seems like her focus in psychiatry was on therapy. In this country, she'd likely be a clinical or a forensic psychologist. And in the modern world of evidence-based medicine, it's hardly surprising that she'd be working therapeutically whilst completing research. But when in close contact with the Joker, having pushed to work with him despite her junior position, she in each of the versions of her origin stories ends up breaking her professional ethics, giving up her position and helping the Joker escape Arkham, often in a traumatic sequence of events. On the Psychomedia podcast, I tried to find a paper that would explain how a therapist could go as far off the rails as Harley does. At that point, I failed, but since then in my job, I've encountered one, Wise et al. 2012, Ethics, Self-Care and Wellbeing for Psychologists, Re-Envisioning the Stress-Distress Continuum. This paper talks about the primary causes of stress for psychologists and suggests a continuum where unmanaged day-to-day stress especially emotional stress, can be especially problematic. The real risk is when these emotional stresses resonate with past traumas. For example, in the New 52, where Harleen had lost her parents in a car accident, or in other versions, was closely involved in her boyfriend's suicide. It is at this point that manageable stress becomes unmanageable distress. If a therapist works in a place of distress long enough, They first make mistakes, and they then try to resolve the distress through their service users. For example, forming a relationship with someone they're in therapy with. Now, I don't know what pressure Harleen was supposed to be under, but Arkham doesn't look like the safest or most supportive place to work. And she was definitely a junior member of staff trying to go beyond her own role, which is potentially very risky. And... When you consider the head of the institution himself heads off in the supervillainous direction, I can imagine that the level of supervision and reflection going on at Arkham is really insufficient. Now, this idea of forming a relationship with a patient is one thing with someone you're seeing without a history of violence or not in a highly secure setting. What's amazing is that such thoughts genuinely do go out the window even in those cases. There's the element of relational security, an area of security in forensic mental health that kind of is about the extent to which people are interacting in a safe way. You know, giving away secrets or sharing information with other professionals um, or not sharing that information, uh, favouring certain patients above others if you're paying attention to the dynamics between patients. One security concern, for example, in the New Earth version, the Joker attempted to strangle her. And it seems staff did not properly intervene and the safety of Harleen's continued working with the Joker was not considered. And relational security includes the area of inappropriate relationships in secure settings, which, believe it or not, I have heard of, even with shockingly violent offenders, by people in job roles where you'd expect them to know better. But those circumstances do often involve people who are highly manipulative. Again, in the New 52 version, it's not just Harleen's loss of her parents making her vulnerable, but that the Joker knows about it and appears to be someone who's on her side as regards it. And there is that pull that's described. It's not love at first for Harleen, it's fascination. Therapists working with complex people in such environments have many motivations, most of which are positive and person-centred. But there's an element of intellectual satisfaction and curiosity that the most unusual and perhaps the most unpredictably dangerous people elicit. Again, having a supervisor in the profession whom you can talk about your feelings and motivations is vital and seems really lacking for Harley. So, once that uh, combination of fascination, vulnerability and attempts to help goes through, Harleen crosses the line into unethical practice, in her case in the most extreme way, usually involving killing people, and becomes Harley Quinn. Her acts of violence and other crime with the Joker enter her up back in Arkham on the other side as a patient. Now, as for the abusive nature of the relationship with the Joker, it's not surprising, perhaps, that a character often described as psychopathic, though we might look at that in a future edition, treats Harley this way. This field isn't especially light as it is, but as someone who works more with offenders, I won't speculate on the psychology that might keep Harley with the Joker for the amount of time that she does stay. So there's the conclusion. Mixed past trauma with a stressful, unsupported work environment where people don't consider relational security, and you can turn the budding Dr. Quinzels of this world into the Harley Quinns. 
Quick side note from research, and by research I mean Wikipedia, in Detective Comics 831, it says that Harley's requests for parole from Arkham are constantly rejected by the lay med- member of the medical commission, Bruce Wayne. I know critiquing Batman for beating up the substantially poorer than him and the mentally ill isn't new, but this seems like a particular new abuse that Harley has not released purely on his word when medical experts appear to deem her ready. In the UK, involuntary detention has so many safeguards to make sure professionals don't overstep their power and keep people beyond their need to be detained for the safety of themselves or others. It sounds like Gotham City has such a system, only for it to be perverted by the fiat of Bruce Wayne. I mean, fiat as in the whim, he doesn't have a fiat. I mean, if the Batmobile is Italian-made, I'd be very surprised. So that's it for the first Psycho-Logic. Welcome back to Psycho-Logic, with its audible pause in the title, for our second instalment. Confusingly, given this features on We Have Issues, this whole concept was suggested by Nick after a very brief discussion on two grown men as to whether Batman was a psychopath or a sociopath. To answer that question, we have to look at a few things. Firstly, what is psychopathy? What is sociopathy? Psychopathy generally refers to a subset of antisocial personality disorder designated by a set of criteria on a checklist developed by a psychologist called Bob Hare, building on the previous work of Cleckley. Antisocial personality disorder is also referred to as sociopathy. So, all psychopaths are sociopaths, but not all sociopaths are psychopaths. Sort of. Technically, you can be designated a psychopath without quite meeting the criteria for antisocial personality disorder, but it's very rare. And the reason why this can happen is that the psychopathy checklist measures two factors, uh, one of which maps onto antisocial behaviour. But before we think about the factors, you'll know I have just used the words sociopath and psychopath. Normally, I wouldn't do this. I've worked with people with a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. And I've worked with people with a high score on the psychopathy checklist. Generally, that's how I'd refer to them. People first, not wholly subsumed and defined by their label, and each one of them coming across in a different way despite sharing a diagnosis. So, what are the two factors of psychopathy? Factor one is the interpersonal factor. It describes the cold, callous, manipulative, grandiose, charming, at least superficially, the constantly lying personality. Factor two is the behavioural factor. It charts the impact of the personality on the person's behaviour, including criminal versatility, irresponsibility, parasitism, and lots of short-term relationships. I want to talk about one last thing before we look at Batman, and his nemesis too, to see if the psychopath construct fits one or the other of them better. One school of thought in clinical psychology is social constructionism. That psychology is influenced by social and cultural factors, and trying to work without taking them into account risks pathologising non-dominant cultures. It includes a politicised element that, for example, given there is a clear connection between poverty and mental health, that work to help improve mental health includes a social and political imperative rather than simply a clinical one. Why is this relevant? Well, partly, we might see Bruce Wayne's cultural context in a world of mass superheroes, rather than instantly considering this a sign of his mental instability. On the other hand, we might expect that because of his wealth, Batman can express psychopathic personality whilst avoiding the sort of acts deemed antisocial by a neoliberal capitalist society. Okay, so we're getting towards comics. Batman and the Joker. Batman has a certain superficial charm and glibness, depending on the version, at least in the identity of Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is a surface, because he is the mask. Not the mask, the mask. I mean, this would be a lot easier if you could see the capitalisation. Certainly, the post-year one Batman, the one who feeds into the Nolan films, does have a certain grandiose sense about being the hero of the city. Although, having said that, it's somewhat based in reality. Batman has to be a consummate liar to conceal his secret identity. But is it really compulsive? It it doesn't seem like he lies when there's no benefit to it. Is Batman manipulative? He certainly sets up situations and people to work to his advantage, although he would regard his advantage in terms of the interests of justice, rather than, say, the get-rich-quick schemes often defied by the sighting. Does Batman lack remorse? 
We can certainly argue that he doesn't think through the negative consequences of his actions, given he carries on in the costumed crime-fighting instead of seeking more systemic ways to address the problems of Gotham. It's reported that he kept Jason Todd's suit and was motivated by his death, and he definitely ruminates on his failures. So that rules out failure to accept responsibility for his actions too. Although one might argue the dead parents card figures somewhere in there, or justify his actions as necessary through the lens of the Batman. Is he emotionally shallow? He certainly tends towards anger as opposed to other emotions. Does he lack empathy? I mean, he seems to seek out a mentor, though similar to him, and not simply to use as weapons against crime. So those are the factor-one factors. Although Batman can seem cold, it seems like he's not the unempathetic chameleon painted by the psychopathy checklist. Although I should say at this point, I'm doing a very quick assessment, whereas a proper assessment for uh, psychopathy checklist should involve a detailed interview and a thorough file review and should be completed by a team of well-trained clinicians. What about factor two items? Well, it's hard to say that Batman has a pathological need for stimulation. Although he might do the high-risk adventurous stuff, the man can hold down a long-term project and get invested in things that would seem quite boring if they fit with his mission. He can't really be said to have a parasitic lifestyle, but then again, he has the biggest trust fund imaginable, so that one is more his social circumstances. Are his goals long-term and realistic? It may be long-term to prep kryptonite for putting down an evil Superman, but do Wheels Within Wheels count as realistic plans, where, on the other hand, in most tellings, his plan is to keep the cowl until he's physically unable to, not really having much vision for his life beyond that? Again, as we were talking about with long-term projects, Batman doesn't seem especially impulsive, but more compulsive and planning and controlling everything. He's not irresponsible, which usually means in the duty or the financial sense, although the Wayne endeavours are sometimes shown to lose out to those of the Batman. But again, he's got a lot of buffers to keep from this. He does seem to struggle to keep a lid on his anger and keep it from spilling over into violence, especially when under greater emotional pressure. The young Bruce Wayne doesn't tend to have emotion... Uh, to have early behavioural problems or juvenile delinquency, and he hasn't gone to prison. He can sometimes give the illusion of promiscuous sexual behaviour, and it might be unfair to blame Bruce rather than the writers for the long string of love interests in his publication history. What about criminal versatility? Certainly acts of violence and espionage not sanctioned by the state, as well as possession of weapons galore, but arson, theft, fraud? He's not really the sort to try anything, regardless of legality, that might be fun or lead to gain, but only that which serves his purposes, even if these purposes are a response to the extreme trauma of his childhood. But on the note of trying anything, the Joker is described as legally insane, although what that involves is unclear. He is described as impulsive, and one could figure that his whole motivation of doing any act, so long as it's funny, as fitting this description, even if it's not strictly unpredictable. And the same with the need for stimulation. He will and has done anything, and he certainly doesn't show remorse. The Joker has a certain charm. I mean, look at his fandom. and As discussed in the previous instalment, the case of Harley Quinn. He often kills in an angry response to those he's perceived has wronged him. His past is a mystery, so we can't speak to his early life, and although he's domestically violent to Harley, he doesn't seem to be promiscuous. He's definitely been in and out of Arkham a number of times and had to be taken back in. He's certainly a pathological liar, unless it would be funnier to tell the truth. And his emotions are driven by humour and laughter, rather than the range of human emotions, although they don't really seem shammed or false. He can't be counted upon even by allies or lovers. His goals can change in an eye blink. And he, too, identifies as a costume villain, so could be considered grandiose. The clown prince of crime isn't a title used by a humble madman. So it seems that the Joker may well fit the idea of the psychopath better than Batman does. But it's worth thinking about one of the many theoretical ideas connected to psychopathy, which is the Dark Tetrad. The Dark Tetrad builds on the idea of everyday psychopathy, that if there are psychopaths, psychopathic elements to Bruce Wayne, they're the more adaptive elements that allow him to stay ahead of business rivals and supervillains alike. That while there may be a clinical group with these sorts of traits, we should consider them as a personality spectrum in everyday life. The other three parts of the Dark Tetrad, where psychopathy focuses on the unempathetic side, are narcissism, Machiavellianism and sadism. Batman probably better figures in Machiavellianism, that lying for his own benefit for example. The Joker certainly contains elements of sadism. People often struggle to distinguish psychopathy from sadism, but an easy way to think of it is this. 
A psychopath will hurt you if it will get them something, because they simply don't care. Whereas a sadist will hurt you even if it's costly to them, because they enjoy hurting you. Of course, it is possible to be both. So trying to attach the psychopath or sociopath label to Batman doesn't really work. How can we figure out what is up with Batman? We'll look at that another time. In this third edition of Psychologic, we turn our attention to Two-Face, Harvey Dent, and try and get a sense of what's going on for him psychologically, exploring some of the diagnoses that have been thrown his way over the years. In the next part after this one, I'll talk a bit more about diagnosis versus formulation, the latter being what a psychologist does. So, taking the long Halloween as the principal source, so spoiler warning for that, what do we learn about Harvey's transformation? Firstly, Dent stands as part of a trio of people going against the tide, along with Jim Gordon and Batman. Batman, we talked about last week, may not be the healthiest man in town mentally, but it can be expected that constantly having to assert one's position against near-universal corruption, for example, Bruce trying to persuade the Gotham Bank not to take the crime lord money, and the constant deaths occurring in the gang war between Falcone and Moroni, will cause high levels of stress. We later learn that Dent's high caseload was keeping him and his wife from having children. In the midst of this, he is disfigured during a court case, after acid is thrown in his face. Now, there's very few psychological problems that can't be framed in terms of trauma. One definition of trauma is to have an experience where you genuinely feared for your life. Others include the violation of the self, both of which can be considered to have happened to Harvey in that moment. D'Souza, 2010, describe how after facial trauma, due to the link with body image and with personality, one may experience body image problems, PTSD, anxiety and depression, although they note that the latter may be confused with natural grief for the loss incurred. I'll quote, Individuals with acquired orofacial trauma who reported PTSD symptoms were more likely to also report pre-injury psychological problems, increased levels of stress, and poor social support. Only having two allies, let alone friends, the stress of what was going on, and possible pre-existing psychological problems, which we'll come back to, could account for Harvey's reaction. Harvey's reaction is to, whilst in the hospital, stab a doctor and flee. He runs off to the sewers and takes up the coin-tossing approach to decision-making. Now, one account of this particular quirk comes from Eye of the Beholder, where Harvey's abusive father beat him on the basis of a coin-toss, which was made with a two-headed coin. We tie back again to the risk factor of underlying psychological problems. One approach to this is schema therapy, which describe the various possible maladaptive schemata for understanding life that can emerge from abusive or neglectful parenting. One such of these is mistrust slash abuse, which Harvey almost certainly experiences given that background. Another is unrelenting standards, a need to meet very high internal standards usually to escape punishment or criticism, which can be seen in Harvey in his drive to become the youngest DA and clean up the city. It can probably be seen in Batman too. Schema theory suggests that some schemas develop as compensations to protect from more difficult ones, so one could develop unrelenting standards in response to mistrust slash abuse as a protective measure, although one that never quite works. Schema theory also suggests that we can react in one of three different ways to schema, Surrender, avoidance, or overcompensation. And different circumstances can cause us to shift these coping styles. So for Harvey, from avoidance through his work, to overcompensation, turning abuse back onto others, and replicating his father's actions. So that's one way to frame Harvey's difficulties, which is a more clinical psychological approach. A reaction to physical trauma built on pre-existing abuse trauma. The idea linking all psychological problems to trauma also holds that multiple trauma equates to more serious and entrenched psychological problems. But it is notable that other people have tried to explain Two-Face's psychology, and it's worth touching on, for example, the three suggestions on his Wikipedia page. 
I must thank Wikipedia for its invaluable help in writing this. The three suggestions mentioned diagnostically are schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and multiple personality disorder. Schizophrenia I will return to in another episode, because it's a big topic and very misunderstood, but the essentials are unusual experiences such as hallucinations, unusual beliefs of various themes, and a sense of one's thoughts being broadcasted, inserted or removed. Alongside this goes confused thought processes and speech, and a general reduction in activity and pleasure. Although Harvey and some accounts, such as Face the Face or No Man's Land, experiences the two-faced persona as separated from the self, it seems not to be a voice that he hears, but more like a separate personality. Whilst he doesn't necessarily act in a way we think of as sane, he's relatively consistent and connected to reality, just in a brutal and ritualistic way. Bipolar disorder is about cycling moods, depression and mania, and although it has two sides, or more accurately two poles, hence the name, with a spectrum that's moved through in between, this doesn't really fit Harvey either. Multiple personality disorder is probably the best fit from the list. Also known as dissociative identity disorder, MPD is a controversial diagnosis, and incredibly rare, but one main theory behind it suggests that it is an extreme form of coping in response to trauma, of which schizophrenia or psychosis can also be said to be from one point of view. However, many cases of MPD are thought to link to therapists who have used hypnosis, and very few studies have been able to show that this particular form of dissociation fits either with trauma or accounts best for the problems of those diagnosed with MPD. So it might well be that writers base Two-Face on the idea, but that the cultural reception of MPD has way outlasted its presence in psychiatry. Personally, if I had to go in a diagnostic direction, the closest fit I see is in the more obsessive-compulsive direction that Harvey simply has to use his coin to make decisions, and it's very hard to compel him, for example in Morrison's Arkham Asylum, to do anything without it. Given the link between trauma and personality disorder, the previously mentioned unrelenting standards and this compulsive behaviour, it could be suggested that Harvey experiences obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, which is related to but separate from OCD, and focuses on excessive rule-following to prevent feared breakdown or disintegration. Certainly my formulation of Harvey would say that rules are very important to him, often to his own detriment, as his body image, that the sequence of traumas has led him to be unable to recover from his injury or seek recovery for, from it, although Jeff Loeb eventually explores this possibility, and to revisit his own abuse on others through the lens of that obsessive attachment to rules. We'll talk a bit more about what formulation is next time. So, I've talked in previous weeks about the need to bring up formulation. I talked a lot about different diagnoses, what they are, how they fit certain people, and how that doesn't always work that well. Formulation is an alternative approach used by pretty much every variety of clinical psychologist, whether cognitive, behavioural, psychodynamic, or somewhere in between. I learned a lot about formulation from a book called Beyond Diagnosis by Brooke and Bond, two of the pioneers of formulation. It's a good read, not least because it's frequently scathing of the idea of diagnosis. Diagnosis is the idea that you meet a certain set of criteria, at which point you can be given a diagnosis. The diagnosis describes an illness, or at least a syndrome, a set of problems that tend to occur together, and implies a shared cause to them. In my practice, we tend to see diagnosis as something to take or leave, that it could be helpful for some, unhelpful for others, and not much use for still others. Brooke and Bond especially highlight this in the case of personality disorder. We'll come back to what that is shortly. Formulation, by contrast, suggests that the most helpful thing to do is seek all the available information and look at how the problems for a person are functioning and interacting in each individual case. There are various structures to do for this. For example, the 5P method, describing the predisposing, precipitating, presenting, perpetuating, and protective factors. Or a CBT method that looks at thoughts, feelings, behaviours, and their basis in rules and assumptions, which are built on beliefs. Or a cognitive analytic approach, which weighs up the reciprocal roles being played out, usually from present 
accepting parental roles that are internalised. Got that? Basically, diagnosis is trying to fit what's happening into a box, because then you know what to do, because of what works for that box for other people. Formulation has to be built from the ground up each time, but it's more personal and specific, and some argue more useful. So what's personality disorder? Emergence, a charity run by people with personality difficulties for people with personality difficulties, describe it as personality traits becoming so intense that they cause significant distress, interfere with the way an individual wants to live their life, and have a negative effect on relationships with other people. As you can tell by the name, as a label it suggests something fundamentally wrong at the core of a person, which can be a very difficult label to receive or accept, and the terminology is debated. I tend to try and go with personality difficulties, but even that doesn't sound great. Furthermore, when it comes to the matter of diagnosis, there's controversy. For a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, for example, another one with a problematic name, in Europe it tends to be called emotionally unstable personality disorder, which is a bit of a better description, you have to meet five of nine diagnostic criteria. This means that two people with the exact same diagnosis could have nearly completely different experiences or problems, and 150 possible combinations of those nine symptoms are possible, all with the same diagnosis. Brooke and Bond suggest that in one study, where a set of doctors were presented with the characteristics of the different categories of personality disorder, they were incorrect in categorising 60% of them. Elsewhere, it's noted that the 10 or so named personality disorders were basically made up by one guy, and committees since have never scientifically questioned the categories themselves or whether we should have categories. So trying to diagnose a person with one of the different types of personality disorder is problematic in lots of ways. So why am I interested in personality disorder, especially this episode? Well, although the causes of personality disorder are not well established, it's thought that difficulties in attachment with parents through neglect or abuse, inconsistency in care or loss and separation are a key factor in the development of a personality disorder. And obviously that makes me think of a certain caped crusader. So, if we use a 5Ps approach, being aware of the facets of personality disorder, we can ask a few questions to look at them. Predisposing. What made me vulnerable in the first place? For Batman, it's losing his parents, in a tragic way that he witnesses. That's a heavy dose of trauma, leading to attachment to someone who may well be loving, but is, is staff, and in his most interpretations, a servile older man. Precipitating. Triggers for the most recent episode. I guess for Batman it's the continuing experiences of crime in the city, for example crossing paths early on with Falcone, and the reminders, constantly, of his parents' death. Presenting. What's the problem? For Batman, this includes, I would say, dressing as a bat and reenacting the violence and abuse on others that he himself, by proxy, has received, just as we talked about with the schema of mistrust and abuse with Two-Face last time. I guess this could be described as antisocial. It also suggests difficulties in healthily managing anger, uh, which we see in times of emotional extremity for Batman, with violent results. There's also an element of paranoia in Batman, the constant monitoring for threats, even amongst those who are supposed to be his closest friends. The kryptonite for Superman can be said to be a sign that Batman struggles to attach or to trust. We talked in the psychopathy section of Psychologic about grandiosity, which in personality terms can be considered perhaps as narcissism. Batman has chosen to create a self-mythology, ostensibly for the purposes of fighting crime, but also perhaps to protect the vulnerable child Bruce that's still inside. And when he's not Batman, life is very tough for him, and he has to win back the cowl by force at times, for example from Azrael. Perpetuating things that keep the problem going. This could include difficulties with trust, rarely having a person to talk to about his difficult feelings in response to crime and perceived threat. His social crew also tends to sustain the problem by acting in similar ways, like Harvey Dent pre-Two-Faced, again, being violent to criminals and breaking the rules. Or Catwoman, who, although she's on the side of crime, seems supportive to the whole dressing up as an animal and committing acts of violence and other illegality thing. Protective. Positive things I've got going for me. I suppose Batman is able to keep up the side of Bruce Wayne, able to work positively for the city in, you know, the Wayne charitable enterprises, 
has lots of material resources, and has a great deal of support to offer those in similar situations to him. So that's a very quick sketch highlighting the antisocial, paranoid, emotionally unstable and narcissistic elements. I've avoided trying to pin down to any one of those diagnoses, and it could be that Batman wouldn't meet the criteria for a single personality disorder, or necessarily that personality disorder would be the right fit overall, so much as a grief reaction or PTSD, or some other diagnosis that has to be hammered in like a square peg. However, I think it would be foolish in considering Batman not to consider what difficulties he might have with his personality. Of course, Batman and Gotham too don't see his actions as a problem. It doesn't seem to cause him distress, or for the most part, it doesn't seem to be a problem for society. So maybe trying to even formulate is the wrong thing to do. To suggest that there is some mental health element to be explored is again incorrect, because the key element of distress, rather than focusing on supposed abnormality, is missing. Of course, maybe I, and that set of psychologist villains, Harley Quinn, the Scarecrow, Dr. Arkham and Hugo Strange, would like to see Batman address his difficulties and find psychological wellness, and leave the city without its dark night. This week, I finally break out of the DC bubble and want to talk about Captain America. The difference, I suppose, is that for our Batman heroes and villains, we see struggles and full-on breakdown, and go back to try and think about contributory factors. For Captain America, we don't see a great deal of psychological upheaval, but we might expect to. I'm thinking very particularly of the events that caused the Cap and Bucky to be ostensibly dead, as seen in Lee and Kirby's The Avengers No. 4, as well as filmically in Captain America, the first Avenger, at least in terms of the good captain. As told in the comic, in April 1945, Cap and Bucky were on a drone plane rigged with explosives, thanks to nefarious Nazi scientist, is there any other kind, Baron Zemo, which subsequently exploded, killing Bucky and leaving Captain America to fall into the Arctic Ocean, where he was frozen in ice. Assuming that The Avengers is set when it was published, that means that 19 years later, the film of course is more like 70 years, when through the angry intervention of the Submariner, who had fought alongside him in the war, the ice in which he was preserved was thrown in the sea. The recently formed Avengers then stumble on his body for some reason. I mean, I think the reason is that in the Avengers number three, they fought the Submariner who was trying to take over the world, and I guess maybe they were chasing him, but it's not really clear from what I've read. Not really important. The important thing is that they find a guy who's been missing, presumed dead, in suspended animation for a couple of decades, and welcome him as an ally, then as a team member. By the Avengers number 16, he's leading the team. Similarly, in the films, having already lost Bucky, the Cap ends up sacrificially flying the Red Skull's plane into the ice, and is then found by S.H.I.E.L.D. at some point 70 years later, and is recruited by Nick Fury into the Avengers. Why is this transition so significant to me? Well, it's the idea of the Cap not just as the hero, but as the man out of time, as Mark Waid titled him. Don't worry, I'm not going to do a time, time joke. They're about as overdone as this chicken and herb roast that I covered in time by which I mean left in the oven too long. Sorry, I'm interested what the impact of that sort of transition in time and out of Arctic ice might have on someone who wasn't Captain America, or indeed on the man who was. Stress is an absolutely vital part of mental health. If you don't have an ongoing experience of mental health, listener, it's likely that any similar experiences have come during times of intense stress and stress of various sorts are often the key to starting and continuing to have difficulties in mental health. Stress differs for each person, but there are some general themes. Holmes and Rahi, Rahi, whatever, who knows, Ra, Rahi, uh, famously studied common life events causing stress and came up with a list with the following items highlighted at the top. Death of a spouse, divorce, marital separation, imprisonment, death of a close family member, personal injury or illness, marriage, dismissal from work, marital reconciliation, retirement, change in the health of a family member, pregnancy, sexual difficulties, gain a new family member, business readjustment, change in financial state, death of a close friend, 
change to a different line of work, change in frequency of arguments, major mortgage, you know, as opposed to all of those minor mortgages, foreclosure of a mortgage or loan, apparently less stressful than getting the mortgage in the first place, and a change in responsibilities at work. Well, the cap experienced his own death of sorts, which definitely counts as a personal injury, and he's definitely changed to a different line of work and in responsibility at work. He's lost a close friend in Bucky, or more if you're on Tumblr. Filmically, there's also the loss of Peggy Carter, which in the comics the cap had already experienced. And if we've learnt anything from Agent Carter, that is an incredible loss for him. Also, I'd just like to say that I started fancying Hayley Atwell during Any Human Heart in 2010, if not before that in the Sally Lockhart stuff, so don't think you're cool for just now realising how awesome she is. So, all of those events in themselves are very stressful, and increasing the likelihood that the captain will have some problems. I want to cover the stress vulnerability model in more detail at a later date, likely through the lens of the Hulk. But as I've already said, the more stress, the more difficult it is. Diagnostically, a significant mental health reaction to a dramatic stressor, or indeed a not-so-dramatic stressor, is called an adjustment disorder, which is a horrible name implying that we should all just be able to adjust to trauma and stress. Uh, in fact, Wikipedia claims the only reason it's retained in diagnostic manuals is so insurance companies will pay for therapy. I'm, I'm guessing the Avengers don't get health benefits. I mean, is there an Avenger with healing powers? And does that apply to mental health as well as physical injury? But there's a more specific element to this for Captain America. Coma adjustment doesn't ever really go like it does in the movies, uh, because it's so frequently associated with brain injury. For example, Azuvi et al. 2009 described that the major issue with adjustment after coma is cognitive difficulties, which in turn impact on family interactions, social and recreational activities, vocational reintegration, and overall quality of life. Initial emergence from coma usually leads to what is called post-traumatic amnesia, a state of confusion, disorientation, and difficulties both with recalling old memories and forming new ones. It would appear that the captain, through his super soldier setup, or the particular way in which he was preserved, has been spared the neurological effects. Maybe that's why he wears the winged headpiece. The reality is that very, very few people have returned from long-term comas, so we don't really know what the social or cultural effects of transitioning in time are, or the psychological effects of moving from a state of limited consciousness to consciousness without the related brain difficulties. But we could consider culture shock. Culture shock was described by Arthur Gordon as the loss of emotional equilibrium that a person suffers when he moves from a familiar environment where he has learned to function easily and successfully to one where he is not. Culture shock seems to fall outside the area of clinical psychology and more in the area of social or cultural psychology. Clinical psychological focuses on cultural differences tend to be in terms of considering whether mental illness is being overdiagnosed because of a westernised focus, although it has been argued that evidence of immigrant populations having higher rates of mental illness than the same culture in their home nation relates to adversity and opposition and therefore back to stress. There are apparently a number of models of culture shock, although the most popular and arguably one that accounts for most of the other models is the five stages of culture shock. The honeymoon, which is exciting and you see the similarities. Rejection or shock, everything feels hard and you see only differences. Regression, glorification of the home country or culture, being critical of the new and having a superior attitude. Acceptance and negotiation, developing a routine, a sense of humour, returns. And finally, reverse culture shock, incorporating the new you into your old life. For the captain, we can imagine that first step, the honeymoon, would be the thrill of his book of things to catch up on, as seen in the Winter Soldier film. The rejection stage might be the sense of loneliness and despair that we see in both of the filmic portrayals. We don't really see the regression stage in the film portrayals, and I confess my knowledge of the wider comics falls down in knowing whether Steve has stages of wishing things were as simple as the 40s, or culturally similar. We know the cap of the films didn't necessarily hold to some of the contemporary military attitudes, for example the segregationist approach of the armed forces. The acceptance we do see with the cap's delightful sense of humour in relation to the Avengers, and the reverse being the captain maintaining his values of fighting Hydra and standing up for what's right. There's another factor that one might expect to affect the captain's mental health 
veteran psychiatry is an increasing area as we recognise the specific needs of those who have been involved in combat and conflict and that traditional routes for mental health care might not fit their styles or offer the understanding empathy that they require. In the US, according to McManus and Wesley 2013, the budget for the Department of Veteran Affairs is approximately the same as that of the entire National Health Service of the UK. That same article notes that this area is only now coming to prominence in the UK, uh, despite the impact in terms of mental health, behavioural difficulties and social problems that come from those who have been in the armed forces and have experienced subsequent difficulties. Effects of anxiety, depression and alcohol abuse, as with the general population, are more common. Uh, we see the captain attempt to use alcohol in the first Avenger in a way he finds rather frustrating. McManus and Wesley also note an special presence of post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is probably one of the more prominent mental health issues seen in the media, most recently in Mad Max Fury Road. It involves having experienced a traumatic event, leading to constant reliving, avoidance of anything related to the event, difficulty in recalling the event, hypervigilance and anxiety, anger, sleep problems and problems with concentration. The reliving element could be through continual nightmares or flashbacks, intrusive thoughts or distress when triggered by similar circumstances. For the captain, there's a really clear point where this might happen in The Avengers number 6. Baron Zemo, the villain responsible for killing Bucky and putting him into stasis, gathers a group of villains to come after the captain and um, covers New York with glue. Okay, so not that traumatic in terms of the level of the villain's plot, but still exposing Captain America to circumstances very similar to the trauma. As the captain says in that issue, your loyalty and trust have been a great comfort for me. They've given me the will to go on. But something else has too. A hunger for revenge. On my oath as an Avenger, I shall devote my life, if need be, to finding the one who caused Bucky's death. Only then will I be able to find peace. That sense of peacelessness and anger is about the closest we see to the captain being perturbed by trauma. But otherwise he shows a remarkable resilience to the extremes of the traumas of war and the singular trauma of his freezing, as well as the possible cultural difficulty of moving from the 40s to the 60s or whenever afterwards. So maybe there's no unified thread to this, you know, comics are unrealistic, shocker, except to consider the significance of stress and trauma in mental health, and that although we don't see the impact of it in Captain America, we can think about some of those experiences, and our equivalents being dropped in the ice, emerging from it, losing our friend, seeing the situational person who did it all to us again, and recall how profoundly significant the experience of war can be on someone's mental health, regardless of the outcome. How very earnest of me to do that as a conclusion. Ah. What is Hulkness? I don't mean the qualities of Hulkness. What I mean is, when is the Hulk the Hulk? There's the one explanation, that when he's calm, he's Bruce Banner, who has a different personality, different abilities, to the person he is when he's hangry, the Incredible Hulk. Bigger, greener, smashier and more inclined to consider God's puny. He's either the Hulk or he's Banner. He's one or the other. And then there's the other angle. I'm always angry. Bruce is the Hulk and the Hulk is Bruce. They're parts of him, but he has the same fury as Banner and the same possibility of tenderness as the Hulk. He's not just his anger, but he's also never not his anger. You can see mental health both ways. I'm not really going to talk about clinical anger today, although the concept exists. I've done a good few screenings for it in my old job, and the treatment is CBT. It's very similar to that for anxiety or depression. But today, let's use depression as the analogy. When he's calm, he's not depressed. He has a different personality. He reacts to things differently. That's one psychological definition of personality. He has different abilities, much better concentration, emotional regulation, sleep hygiene, when he's depressed, he appears physically different, paler, more drawn, more tired. He's sad and numb at the same time, and he's distracted, turning over and over negative thoughts about himself. He's either depressed or he's not. He's one or the other. And then there's the other angle. I'm always depressed. The depressed part, the core negative beliefs or core pain or unhelpful schemas, and yet also the part that's creative, that's a good worker who just needs some time off. Or the friend, or the husband. He's not just his depression, but he's also never not a depressed person. Neither really work, do they? 
but they're both traps we fall into. To see depression and other mental health as a state or a trait, either totally flexible or totally inflexible. The flexible leads us to see it as easy, as something that someone could cheer up from that isn't potentially life-threatening or otherwise life-devastating. The inflexible sucks out hope. It labels. What's the solution? Well, I guess in previous weeks I talked about being more specific and formulating. The Hulk is a person who, thanks to experiences I'll revisit later, experiences difficulties with anger, which he continually wrestles with. At a certain level, this anger changes his behaviour, and he appears to become what might be described by himself or others as a different person. My exemplar is a person who has negative self-beliefs that in some circumstances become more ruminated upon, an increase in negative thoughts that links to difficulties in sleep, with an impact on physical health which itself impacts on his work. We might talk of things as a spectrum, where a person is moving at all times, and that we're all somewhere on the depression spectrum. That's a big dilemma of mental health, to quote, the line between mental illness and common unhappiness is so fine. And maybe what's important isn't another person's labelling of something, but our own narrative, our own understanding, our own words. But sometimes it helps to have some understanding of the how and the why. So what might determine where someone is on the depression spectrum at all? What is the how and the why of the shifting sounds of mental health? I deliberately avoided talking about the background of the Hulk and the circumstances of a man, because those are the two factors in the main model of mental health, the stress vulnerability model. The model basically says that to experience mental health difficulties, one must have a vulnerability, coming from biology or very early experiences, as well as stress, both experiences of trauma and everyday experiences of a stressful life. I guess trauma can be conceptualised on both sides, but as discussed in previous weeks, trauma is very important. It's sometimes represented by a bucket. Vulnerability determines the size of the bucket, and stress is the amount of water it's trying to hold. When there's too much water for the bucket, it overflows, and that's when things start being difficult. When I was last talking about this concept in a group therapy session, one of my co-facilitators found bucket a euphemism for vagina which meant she was just trying not to crack up when I was talking about the various capacities of different people's buckets. So, to take existing traumas of vulnerability, Hulk is the expression of the child who has witnessed abuse. It literally says that on his Wikipedia page. As a child, Banner's father, Brian Banner, often got mad and physically abused his mother, Rebecca, creating the psychological complex of fear, anger, and the fear of anger and the destruction it can cause that underlies the character. It wasn't gamma radiation that made the Hulk. It was something far more dangerous to humans. We talked already about the idea of the dissociated personality. The dissociated personality is the self able to survive the abuse, the trauma at any cost, put again a gun against your head, and that survivor side will spit the bullet out. That line always makes me think of the saint of killers. Not enough gun. Said very differently, of course, by the staccato Hulk. His anger is the anger he has learnt before he even knew what he was learning. It is, we could argue, although in a somewhat labelling way, a dysfunctional coping mechanism. I mean, dysfunctional when it's smashing a city and getting him exiled to another planet, rather than smashing the bad guys. In general, those who witness abuse as children are strongly likely to resort to anger and violence as a problem-solving approach in future. The DNA of the Hulk is another factor. More evidence-focused psychologists definitely argue that there are discernible genetic components to every flavour of mental health experience. For depression, for example, a foreshortened protein in serotonin 5-HT receptors is thought to be a clear risk factor for some forms of depression. According to Jacobson et al. 2012, those that have high suicidality and aggression. Studies of inheritance, which often look at twins or siblings adopted separately to compare the genetic and environmental influences, suggest that psychosis is highly genetically heritable, with the risk factor increasing from 1% in general to 50% with a parent with psychosis. So the impact on the Holt's DNA is an interesting metaphor for a possible biological vulnerability. And then you have to put the stress on top, being pushed off a building, being trapped, being angry. Each of these provoke the Hulk into breaking out into that persona. And similarly, the stresses that we discussed in the last issue about Captain America, as well as basically the limitless variety of things that we individually find difficult, all tax the vulnerability and lead to the manifold manifestations of difficulty that we call mental health. It means that there's two routes to mental health experience. High vulnerability through genes and extreme early deprivation of love, say, where the slightest life problem can trigger a seemingly extreme response. Or high stress, where wave after wave of adversity takes anyone to the edge. 
A great example is in psychosis. The most common reason for voice hearing is sleep deprivation. The next most common is bereavement. Extremes of physical stress, extremes of emotional stress. The fine line applies even with the even more esoteric experiences associated with mental health. And the greatest difficulties come then with high vulnerability and high stress. That's where the unstoppable anger comes. What can we do about it? Well, reducing the stress is one part. Increasing physical exercise, improving sleep, building up a coping and self-care toolbox. Mitigating the vulnerability is the other big surprise. Medication, rebalancing the biological vulnerability. And therapy, looking to retell the internal negative stories and work on the core beliefs. So for the Hulk, helping him stay calm is one part. And some gamma ray machine or, I don't know, well, therapy might be the way to help him. So that's the first six episodes. I don't know how long it will take to construct the next six. It might be that my new studies lead to fertile comparisons, or that I have to think seriously about psychology, so the psychology bit of my brain, that's a thing, runs out of juice, that's also a thing. I also don't know how long it will take to reconvene another Tim and Max, but it will happen. It will. I just want to mention a bit of uh, thanks for the feedback. Words like adoration have been used, admittedly, by my own podcast partner. So, But thank you especially to Sidathan and uh, for his encouragement, as well as Nick and Maxie. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you want to catch up in the meantime between episodes, you should go to wehaveissues.net where instalments will go out up to the minute as contributions to that podcast. If you want to talk about anything in the show, find me on Twitter at TetraArchangel or comment on psychomedia.wordpress.com where there's tons more psychology and pop culture. And until next time, bye bye as well as femically femically great good brilliant